Sin and Judgment from Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given, as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. We may ask the question, what does this chapter have to do with sin and judgment? Well, in verses 1 to 2, if we don't understand the elementary teaching about the Christ, then we are not even infants in Christ. If we need to be retaught it, then what explains, what is the justification for our ignorance of these doctrines? The elementary teachings are in verses 1 and 2. Already in the previous chapter, 5, 11 to 14, he has already reprimanded us if we are dull of hearing because we have to be taught the elementary teaching again when at this stage in the Christian life we should be mature and eating solid food, the word of righteousness, and 
have the ability to discern good and evil. If we're not at that point, if we have not reached maturity because we have been in the faith for a long time, then we are in sin because we don't even understand, we can't even explain the elementary teaching. Not only that, but we are unable to press on to maturity. At this stage, if we have been in the faith for a long time and we have not reached maturity in the faith in reference to the doctrines, the application of the doctrines, the practice of those doctrines, if we haven't reached that stage yet and it has been a long time in the faith, then we are sinning because we're not mature. We are immature. We are behaving like newborn infants who need to be taught everything in life, the basics and much more. That's one. Another place where we find sin is in verses 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6. Those who have received these immense spiritual blessings, immense spiritual privileges, these experiences of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the things of Christ, heavenly things, miraculous things, those who have experienced, those who have seen, those who have witnessed, those who have heard about it, those who read about it in the Bible, and yet walk away from Christ, they are completely gone. It says in verse 6, 6, 6, it says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. They're gone. They have had the abundance presented to them on a silver platter, and yet they have overturned the platter that has so many precious things on it. They want nothing to do with it, and they walk away from it. Then in verses 7 and 8, we find that there is either blessing or judgment. Blessing in verse 7, judgment in verse 8. The blessing of God, the abundance of God, the good fruit of God in verse 7, but fruitlessness and a curse in verse 8. Verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12 is an encouragement for us to press on and be active instead of being sluggish in the faith. If we are sluggish, it's a sin. If we are diligent, hardworking, pressing on, then that is righteousness. That is good fruit. That's the way we should be. Then in 13 to 20, 13 to 20 addresses Abraham as an example. Most people, Jews and Christians, when they read the Bible, they want to claim Abraham as their father in the faith. They should be trying to do it because the Bible does that. The Bible does it throughout the Old Testament, and in the New Testament the Bible does it, such as our passage here. But who has the rightful claim to Abraham? He explains in verses 13 to 20 that whatever he's been preaching to this point, and even later, Abraham believed those promises. Abraham was faithful to God. Abraham did not break any vows or oaths before God. Abraham did not turn back and go to his old ways. Abraham did not reject the absolute truth of the gospel of Christ. He did not do any of those things. He trusted in the promises of God, which means that if anyone does not believe in the true gospel of Christ like Abraham does or did, 
if he does not do that and he backslides, he goes back to his old ways, he's like the dog that returns to its vomit. If he does that, then he is no child of Abraham. Back to verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2, the elementary teaching. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The elementary teaching that he wants us to leave behind in terms of, do I need to explain it again? Do I need to explain it a hundred times, a thousand times? How many times do I have to explain it? Why is it that you don't understand? Why is it that you are incapable of pressing on to maturity? What are these teachings that we should understand so that we can press on to maturity? He says, repentance from dead works. Do we understand repentance? What it really is? Is repentance merely a change of mind? Learning new information about the Bible and God, the gospel? You never believed Jesus was the Son of God, now you believe He's the Son of God? Okay, then you repented. No, that's not repentance. That's not what he means here. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. Because it says, dead works. Our works were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, but not anymore. We repent of our old deeds and we embrace living works, good deeds that lead to eternal life. Further, faith toward God. Faith toward God. It's not only repentance or turning away from sin, but it's also positively faith in God or faith toward God. Whatever God has announced in Christ, we should believe. We must believe whatever God says. And if we do not believe whatever God says, we do not have true faith. Hebrews 11, 1, 11 verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Further, verses 6 and 7. 11, 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to Faith. This is what faith toward God truly is. Do we have it? And can we explain it to others? Verse 2, of instruction about washings. Instruction about washings. Washings have to do with the various baptisms of the Old Testament. There were things and people who needed to be immersed in the Old Testament, and there were objects that needed to be sprinkled, sprinkled with water and sprinkled with blood. Do we know the un and understand the significance of those symbols or types, shadows of the Old Testament and how they are fulfilled in Christ? Can we explain? Many times when we read the Old Testament, 
those kinds of rituals are a complete enigma to us. But they shouldn't be. Especially if we read the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 to 10, he will explain many of those and give us the gist of what we need to understand about the various washings. Can we explain them, especially in reference to the fulfillment of the types or symbols, the shadows, in Christ? Verse 2, laying on of hands. How, in what sense, in what way are we to lay hands upon another? Primarily, the main one in the New Testament is laying on of hands in terms of installing leaders in their offices in the local church. The laying on of hands. Who is qualified? What needs to be done for the qualifications to take place? How are we going to select? Where are we going to find these men? The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead. Do we understand the resurrection of the dead? What does the scripture say about that? The resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24, 15. Not just the righteous are going to rise from the dead immortally and, and be with Christ forever. Acts 24, 15 says that even the wicked are going to rise from the dead. But when they rise from the dead, their bodies will be susceptible to torment, anguish, pain, forever and ever in the lake of fire. They will have the physical body tormented forever. The righteous will have it in peace, in comfort, and immortality and joy with Christ forever. But the, right, the wicked have it in the opposite way, the resurrection of the dead. The Bible describes it. Do we know what it says? Can we explain to others? Remember, we're talking about explaining to others because the Bible says if you cannot explain it to others, then you don't really believe it. You don't really understand it to be able to explain it to others. If you can't explain it to others, then it's likely that you truly do believe it. Why do we say that? 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, As it is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. So also, we believe, therefore also we speak. If we believe it, we'll open up and speak about it. He who is for me is not against me. And he who gathers with me, if he gathers with me, he does not scatter. Or he who does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12, 30. Well, how do we gather people? We have to preach to them. We have to explain things to them in order to gather them. And if we don't do that, we are scattering people. Further is the eternal judgment. When we explain the reason for Christ coming into the world and what he is actually delivering us from, we have to know that God has said there is a day of judgment. The righteous and the wicked will be judged. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to have the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, the righteous on the right, the wicked on his left. <clears throat> the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly 
of the righteous. There is such a thing as eternal judgment. There is no such thing as ceasing to exist. Annihilationism, extinction, nothing like that is happening. We are actually going to live forever and ever. Nor are we going to return to this world in reincarnation or transmigration of the soul. That's not going to happen. It's either eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. Eternal judgment. And Jesus will be the judge judging every single person throughout all history. Jesus Christ will be the judge. Are we correctly understanding these doctrines and are we able to speak of them to others so that they understand? If not, then there is sin. There is deficient comprehension, deficient knowledge, and that has to be rectified. We must understand, believe it, and be explaining it to others. Verse 3, And this we shall do if God permits. What is it that we shall do if God permits? What is it that we shall do if God permits or God wills? That is, verses 1 and 2, leave the elementary teaching, press on to maturity. On the one hand, there is an exhortation that we must be that way. On the other hand, it's only possible if God wills it in our particular life. If He does not will for it to occur in us, it will not occur. In other words, verse 3 is preaching predestination. Verse 3 is predestination. Verses 1 and 2 explain human responsibility. We are obligated to be that way, but the reality is it will never happen unless God permits it. According to verse 3. This doctrine of predestination is also found in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. 13, 20 to 21. 13.20 Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It says that the, the prayer is for the God of peace in verse 21 to equip you in every good thing to do His will. He must equip us to do His will, but He also, verse 21, works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He equips us and works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. We cannot, in the interpretation of Hebrews 6 and even the rest of the book, Ignore the fact that he is, at the same time, though he's preaching much human responsibility and many warnings, he's also preaching predestination. This is important to keep in mind, especially because of verses 4 to 6. 4 to 6 or 4 to 8, why is this important to keep in mind? That both doctrines of human responsibility and God's predestination are both taught here. They're taught in this very passage. 
It's important to keep in mind because many denominations believe that one can actually receive true salvation, receive true eternal life, be actually born again, have true faith, and yet, at a point in life, lose that true salvation, lose that true faith, lose that eternal life, lose that forgiveness of sins. Many denominations believe, based on Hebrews 6 and other passages of Scripture, that one can actually possess eternal life and then later in the Christian life lose it. And then among those denominations, some believe you lose it permanently. Lose it permanently. There's no way to regain it. And they say it partially because of verse 6, impossible. Verse 6 says impossible to renew. But other denominations who believe in the loss of salvation, they say you can lose it today and regain it today. Or lose it today and regain it tomorrow. And then after you regain it tomorrow, you can lose it next week and then regain it a month from now whenever you repent again. Whenever you confess faith in Christ again. Whenever you ask God to forgive you again. They believe that you can lose it, regain it, lose it, regain it, lose it, regain it. Another interpretation of verses 4 to 8, another wrong interpretation, heretical interpretation that contradicts this passage and the rest of the book and the rest of Scripture. A third interpretation is that this passage is only explaining the loss of rewards. The loss of rewards or less rewards in heaven is not teaching loss of salvation, or anything else. It's only teaching loss of rewards. And they also say that chapters 3 and 4, the wilderness generation under Moses, they didn't lose salvation or they didn't uh, never possess salvation in, and then go to heaven um, simply that way. What happened was, they had salvation, but they died in the wilderness because they simply lost rewards. They lost rewards in heaven, but they did not lose salvation. They retained their salvation. That is the third viewpoint that takes Hebrews 6, Hebrews 3 and 4, and other places in Scripture to say that people can be very, very rebellious their whole life, but be truly saved, it's just that they don't get rewards or as many rewards as others who are more faithful throughout their Christian life. And then a fourth interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4-8 is that it is merely hypothetical. It's a, a mere theoretical or hypothetical warning just to arouse some more seriousness in us, to arouse more solemnity in us. It's only hypothetical. It's only theoretical. It's not actual. So this would never actually happen to anybody. 
But he's preaching it as though it could happen to, to people, only to create a little bit of fear and reverence in us. None of these four interpretations are true. They're all false. They must be false because they contradict the very passage and they contradict the book of Hebrews and they contradict the rest of Scripture. Why so? Because verse 3 says, if God permits. 13.21 says, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Those are verses on predestination. That they will accomplish salvation, they will attain salvation, forgiveness of sins, ultimately, eternally, successfully, definitely and definitively, because God will make sure it happens. If they are His elect, He will make sure it happens. They will produce fruit unto eternal life. Verse 3, all of these other interpretations do not properly consider verse 3. The four false interpretations do not give verse 3 its proper weight, nor Hebrews 13.21, nor other places in Scripture which preach election, that God chooses whomever He will to be saved. They don't properly regard the rest of Scripture either. Further, then, if verses 4 to 6 are actual, not theoretical, not hypothetical, then who is he describing? He's describing false brethren. He's describing pretenders. He's describing those people who claim to know God, who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That is who is described here in Hebrews 6, 4-8. The, the ones who receive the judgment, those are the false brethren. The false brethren are those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They have had some taste, some experience, some inkling, some ability to explain, to understand, to know, to even experience the blessings of God, but then they walk away from it. They fall away from it. He is describing people like that. And if we were to do an in-depth study we could find in the Old Testament from verses 4 to 6 examples of the wilderness generation having experienced things like this in verses 4 to 6. The wilderness generation experienced what he's describing in verses 4 to 6. He described them, generally speaking, in, verses three, uh, in chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 3 and 4, he's basically saying the same thing, but in chapter 6, he's specifying the kinds of blessings they experienced. And this is the same in the church. In the church, it also happens like this. 
How do we know that it also happens this way in the church? Remember Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve apostles. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles, had this ability. Matthew 10, Matthew 10, and verses 1 to 23. Matthew 10, 1 to 23. Christ equips his twelve apostles in Matthew 10, 1 to 23. But it is summarized what they do. At least the miraculous part is summarized in verse 1. Verses 2 to 4 explain who the apostles were. And verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, what was it that Judas preached? Verse 7 says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judas Iscariot preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a true statement. He's preaching the gospel like John the Baptist did. The kingdom of, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just like Jesus did. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's doing the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judas Iscariot is preaching the truth. Also in verse 1, though, he has miraculous powers. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Judas Iscariot had that authority to perform those miracles. Yet Judas Iscariot was not saved, never saved, never saved, and eternally judged, punished. Not only Judas, though, on the last day, Matthew 7, 21-23, says this, which is applicable to the church. The church after the day of Pentecost as well. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice Lawlessness. Are these people calling him Lord? Are they not equipped to perform miracles like that? Have they not done something? And are they not claiming to be his followers, therefore preaching and living the way that they claim is the way Christ wanted them to live? But in verse 23, on the day of judgment, Christ will say, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I once knew you, but now I don't know you anymore. Or I once knew you, I knew you for a day. I knew you for a month. I knew you for 10 years, but then you lost your salvation. No, I never knew you, is his declaration. And why? Because they practice lawlessness. They fall away. They reject the sound Doctrine, the sound doctrine of the gospel, they walk away from it. They fall away. They had the experience of hearing it. They knew exactly what to say, exactly what to preach. And even some of them are, were equipped to perform miracles and say, Is, are not these miracles proofs that we belong to you? And Jesus says, no, I never knew you. And the same here, Hebrews 6 False brethren. 
false brethren are described. Remember we saw in 3.12 and 13, he says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. He's addressing the church, the visible church, the recipients of this letter. He's addressing them, but he says among those assembled, those who are reading this, any one of you, verse 12. He says it again in 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Any one of you. Chapter 4, verse 1. For one, therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. 4.11, 4.11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. False brethren are described. And this is commonplace in local churches. That they experience the blessings of God and yet at a point they fall away from those blessings. They fall away, they walk away. Those people, he says in 6, are impossible to renew again to repentance. Proverbs chapter 29, Proverbs 29 and verse 1. Proverbs 29, 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. After much reproof, if there's hard-heartedness, He is beyond remedy. 1 Samuel 3.14 1 Samuel 3.14 And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. No sacrifice, no offering that atones, covers the sins, forgives the sins of Eli's house forever. He is, or his household, was beyond remedy. 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36, 16. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. No remedy because they persisted in rejecting the truth. It says that God's wrath rose against his people. Many think, well, they are his people So they're always saved. They're never lost. They always have His blessing, always have His compassion. No, they don't. It says His people receive the wrath of God and they have no remedy. 
no salvation. The same in Hebrews 6, 6. When the truth is rejected persistently with blasphemy, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. They walk away from it. They fall away from it. There is no possibility of restoration. These are the words of Holy Scripture. And what's the reason? Verse 6, is it a valid reason? Is it a valid reason why they are so judged? Yes. Verse 6, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Hebrews 10.29 further explains this. Chapter 10, verse 29. What does it mean to crucify again to themselves the Son of God and to put Him to open shame? What does it mean? Hebrews 10.29. How much severe punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. When we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, verse 26, when we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he says that we are trampling underfoot the Son of God and regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. We are, in other words, crucifying Christ by despising Christ as the original crucifiers were despising Christ. We are despising Christ to ourselves in reference to ourselves and we are regarding the blood of the covenant as unclean. We don't want it. We want nothing to do with it. We don't want His blood applied to us. We're walking away from that. And we are insulting the Spirit of grace. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Insulting the Spirit of grace. Those who fall away are doing so whether they admit it or not, they are doing so, according to Scripture. The key is whether they admit it or not. Few will admit that they are doing it. Few of them will say, oh yes, I am, I am spitting upon Christ and I want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Few of them will ever say that. Most people will fall away and say, I'm still a Christian, but just not the way you're telling me. Well, it's not the way we're telling. It's the way the Scripture is telling. It's the Scripture saying it, not us. We're just repeating Scripture. Verse 7, Hebrews 6, 7. Now he explains with a symbol, an illustration. For a ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Verse 7 is the true believer, the true brother, who produ produces fruit. Jesus said, John 15, 8, 15, 8, By this is my Father glorified, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. John 8.31, John 8.31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you abide, if you remain, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Matthew 7, 16. Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Matthew 7, 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. What is happening in their life? Is their life showing the fruit of the Spirit? Is it showing good fruit? If it is showing good fruit, then we know that they are true believers, true brothers, and they receive a blessing from God. However, if it's the opposite, thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles are worthless except to harm other people. Correct? For humans at least. Thorns and thistles are useless. They're only good for burning and harming other people. If you want to poke somebody that you don't like, you can use a thorn or thistle and poke them. And if it's a poisonous weed, rub it against them. Put it near them and harm them. But they are of no value to us. They don't have any fruit. We, they don't have a good fragrance that we can use. They don't have any fruit that we can consume. Nothing like that. They are worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. This is like Christ said, the tares will be gathered by the angels at the end of the age and then thrown into the furnace of fire. Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Matthew 13, 36 to 43. The angels at the end of the age will gather them all up and throw them in the furnace of fire. Because there's no fruit. No fruit means no root, no true root, no healthy root. Now, in chapter 6, we come to 9 to 12. And he says, based on his observation, at least of the vast majority of them, though he is presenting a warning, based on his observations, he is convinced of better things. He's encouraging them now. He's encouraging them by what he has observed and known of them and encouraging them to press on and to bear more fruit very diligently, and not just one or two of them, but each one of them. It's easy to say, well, it's good for her, but not for me. It's good for him, but not for me. He can be a little more zealous, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be cool on this. I'm not going to be so extreme. No, we can't do that. He's telling all of us to ha- practice the same diligence. How does 
our true faith in God manifests itself. Verses 9 to 12. 9. But beloved, notice the change. The change. Now he calls them beloved. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. At the end of verse 9, when he says, though we are speaking in this way, this is why the hypothetical view says, well, he's not being serious and actual about it. He's being hypothetical about it. No. He's presenting a strong warning, but for the majority of his readers, the majority of the recipients, he is convinced that he has seen good fruit in them, that they are true believers. That's why he's saying, we are convinced of better things concerning you, but we must speak this way because there might be any one of you. There might be somebody and there might be a few among you who are not actually true recipients of salvation because you don't truly believe. Verse 10, based on what he has seen in them, verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There's the proof right there. The tangible deeds, the practical good deeds, good works that he has seen is the fruit he means here. He says that God remembers, he will not forget the love which you have shown toward his name. You prove that you truly love God and you love the name of God and you love to have the name of God identified with you. How? Because you have ministered and you still minister to the saints. You have served the saints and you still serve the saints. You're continuing to do so. You're not aloof. You're not idle. You're not twiddling your thumbs. You're not consumed with distractions, worries of this world, entertainment, love of pleasure. You're not consumed with things like that. You are ministering, still ministering to the saints. What gives you motivation, what gives you eagerness and diligence is what can I do next to love my brother? That's what we're thinking about because when I love my brother, I am glorifying the name of the Lord. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The desire is not for just one or some of the church, but every single person in the church show the same diligence. He says, each one of you. Each one of you. Everyone should show the same diligence to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Why would he say that? Because when we see our, tra- our own transformation, when we understand that the man I am now, I was not that man six months ago, six years ago, or 60 years ago. I was not that same man. I was a different man. I was a wicked man before, but not, now I'm not that way. And my whole life has been 
reflecting the will of God and producing the fruit of the Spirit. And I love God, and I show because I love my neighbor as myself. That's the full assurance of hope until the end. Seeing the transformation and the tangible, actual, good fruit in one's life. That gives us full assurance of hope until the end. To press on, to continue. Verse 12, he says so, that you may not be sluggish. We should not resort to sluggishness. We see this word and this adjective is coming from the little insect that goes very carefully and slowly across the ground. When it goes like that, uh, a rabbit can beat it, a squirrel can beat it, a two-year-old little child can beat it crossing the path, right? But when we are inactive, when we are idle, when we are lazy in the Christian life, we are described as a slug. We are sluggish. That's not a good adjective. It's not a good thing to be. We may feel that way, but we must overcome. We might want to be that way, but we must overcome. And do what's necessary to overcome, to be consistent. Not that we're going to be perfect, but we must progress. There must be consistency. There must be good fruit born to avoid being sluggish. The opposite of sluggishness is, verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate others who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Faith and patience. Not waywardness or double-mindedness in faith, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James 1.8 and 4.8. Stop being double-minded. Have single-minded, strong, secure, stable faith. Also, patience. If we don't receive what we are expecting in our prayers the next day or the next year, even 10 years, should we give up? No. Not at all. The reason this is significant is in verses 13 to 20. Abraham had to wait until he was 100 years old to have Isaac, his son. Sarah had to wait until she was 90 years old for her son. Isaac himself had to wait until he was 40 years old to marry a wife. And when Isaac was 60 years old, he waited 20 years for his wife, Rebekah, to bear children. And she, bared, and she bore two children, twins, Esau and Jacob. That's talking about earthly promises and waiting for them to be fulfilled. 
But there's also eternal ones that we don't see. And we have to patiently endure the afflictions of life, the distresses of life now, to be able to experience the eternal promises that we don't see. Abraham exemplifies both. He waited a long time for many things God promised to him on the earth to be fulfilled on the earth. And other promises he never actually saw while he was on the earth. He had to experience them after he died. That's the way it will be with us. So we should also imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 13. Abraham is the example. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That shows how great God is and how solemn and important the promise is or the oath is. He says he swore by himself. And if he swears by himself, God is the one who has the ability to carry out what he swears, what he promises. He is God Almighty, able to fulfill his word. 14, saying, now we have the content, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. God says he will surely do so. Surely bless, surely multiply. 15, and thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. But wait a minute. Did Abraham see his descendants, physical descendants, as the stars of heaven? No. That happened during the time of their sojourn in Egypt when Moses was chosen to lead them out of Egypt. That happened many years later. Abraham never saw that. Did Abraham see his spiritual descendants multiply? No. He saw some, he saw a few, but not like the stars of heaven. Genesis 15 says, Genesis 15 says, like the stars of heaven. Genesis 22 says, like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the seashore. That's how innumerable his physical and spiritual descendants would be. He never saw that on the earth. But 15 says, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise, having patiently waited. Well, some of what God promised in reference to his physical and spiritual life, he did see. He did obtain those things. One such is seeing the birth of Isaac. He also was alive to witness and experience the birth of Esau and Jacob. 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Yes, we swear by those greater than ourselves, and when we swear an oath, we're not saying swear in terms of using vulgarity or profanity. When the Bible is speaking of it, it's talking about swearing an oath. That is, saying before God that you will indeed 
fulfill what you are vowing or promising, such as what we do when we marry one another. We exchange vows. We are swearing oaths because we're doing it in the sight of God and we're saying, till death do us part, right? We won't part until death separates us as husband and wife. That's similarly what he's saying right here. But when we do so, it should end every dispute among men. And typically it does, unless you have some scoundrels who are falsely swearing and promising things to each other. But generally speaking, if they come with good faith, good intentions about whatever they're making in agreement, in a treaty, in a contract, in a covenant, then it ends every dispute. Everything is clarified. Everything is settled. Okay, you swore. I swore. We both swore. That's it. And this is how we will both proceed. But it's not two men doing it. It's God. When two men do it, generally it works. Not absolutely, but generally it works. But when God's doing it, notice in 17 and 18, when God is doing it, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things, one, God said it. He said it, so it's a promise if He says it. So both His his speaking it or promising it, and then he not only promised it, he added an oath to it. He interposed it with an oath. If God says it, that should be enough. But not only did he say it, he attached an oath to it. Two unchangeable things. He said it, so it will happen. And then he swore an oath by himself, therefore it must happen. Why did God do that? Did God do that that way because he needed to be reminded? Was God trying to put a curse on himself if he breaks it? No. God did it that way for you and me. Initially, he did it for Abraham. But he also did it for you and me because we learn from Abraham because what Abraham believed in the gospel, we also believe in the same gospel. And therefore, he's giving us strong encouragement that God being a faithful God will do exactly as he has said and exactly as he has sworn to do. He will do it. He wants us to have confidence in his Word. God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? 
God will do what he said, especially now encouraging us by the oath. If God is a God of blessings, should we not trust him? Should we not believe him? He will do according to his will, his word, his oath for us, for us, for our benefit, for our salvation, eternal life. 19 and 20, 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope is an anchor of the soul. The hope is sure and steadfast. The anchor of the soul, the hope of faith that we have, is what will sustain us and encourage us to press on. And he says that it's one that enters within the veil. He's making reference to the veil of the temple and tabernacle, the veil, the, the main sanctuary of the tabernacle and temple had the holy place and then a veil to a smaller place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And people could not go there whenever they wanted. Not even the priests could go there whenever they wanted, however they wanted, into the most holy place. They had to go only after properly preparing themselves with the rituals that God ordained for them. Then they could go. The priests could. But the common people could not. Why was that the case? Why is he talking about the veil? In what way does he mean it? Well, the, the priests could go after ample prescribed preparation. They could enter. But the priests were illustrations of Christ. That Christ would one day enter into heaven having shed his own blood and gone to the Father, ascended to the Father, preparing the way for us. He's the forerunner for us. He goes ahead of us. And if he has gone into heaven like that, he has promised that we who believe in him shall also go there. And that veil symbolizes this transition from here to there. He has gone there. We shall go there. Because it says in verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He was not an Aaronic priest who did those earthly rituals constantly. He was of the order of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood, as we learned in chapter 5. We will also learn it in chapter 7 and, and further, that it's a superior priesthood, and he, with that priesthood that he holds forever, he entered into heaven, a forerunner for us. If he went ahead into heaven for us, he will receive us. Believe in God. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to, to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the promise, the hope of eternal life that he has given to us. He went first, we shall go second. Let's believe this. Let's believe his promises, persevere until the end, endure all afflictions, bear much fruit, grow in true knowledge, and grow in true righteousness until the very end. There's nothing else worth living for. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.